In the classic 1947 movie, Miracle on 34th Street, the Santa at Macy's says something kind of shocking. He tells a mom and her son who are in line to see him that Macy's is sold out of a fire engine toy, and he tells them to go to a totally different store. Well, the only important thing is to make the children happy. And whether Macy or somebody else sells a toy doesn't make any difference. Don't you feel that way? Huh? Oh, me? Oh, yeah, sure. Only I didn't know Macy's did. Well, as long as I'm here, they do. Now, there are a couple of things that are surprising about Santa's suggestion. One is that he's sending a Macy's customer to a competitor. The other is that the whole movie is set against the backdrop of the department store wars, which seems so dated to us now. Macy's arch rival in the movie, Gimbel's, went out of business in the 1980s. Macy's itself is now struggling. Projections are that about a quarter of shopping malls in the U.S. are going to close within the next five years. Many of those malls are concentrated in lower-income suburbs. And shopping does not just have to do with what we buy. It defines how we spend our time, what our towns look like, where the jobs are. It has an enormous effect on communities. Whenever you close a store, when you close a mall in that community and the people are left without some of their favorite places to shop and the city is left without the tax revenues and left without the jobs, it can be devastating on a community. And I feel terrible for those communities. I I really do. That's Daryl Rigby, a partner at Bain & Company who has followed the retail world for decades. In retail right now, and this is probably not going to come as a shock to you, there's been a lot of action for high-end luxury retailers, and there's a lot of action on the low end. The middle part of the market is the part that's getting torn. Clearly, the lower end, for example, we do see some of the dollar stores doing very well. Some of the, they wouldn't call themselves lower end, but the TJ Maxx and Ross that pull sales from department stores And so we are seeing that kind of bifurcation, and I think that's likely to continue until the retailers in the middle market there figure out how to make their stores worth going to. The leader, of course, of the inexpensive retailers, the pathbreaker, and one of the two heavyweights in a modern-day version of the Macy's Gimbel's Slugfest is a place called Walmart, which pioneered low-cost retailing in a very disruptive way. Walmart cut the legs out from under a lot of single category stores in a lot of places and not just little towns, but, you know, places like Raleigh and Kansas City, slightly larger towns. Charles Fishman wrote a book about Walmart about a dozen years ago, and he's followed the company closely ever since. He writes for the magazine Fast Company. And Walmart did that with pricing and with convenience and with selection. But, of course, Walmart didn't do it. Walmart doesn't have a tractor beam. Walmart doesn't show up in town and suddenly everybody sort of automatically starts shopping at Walmart. We did that. Americans did that. We voted with our wallets. And those small-town stores, probably many of them weren't in a position to compete. They certainly couldn't compete on price. Some of them did survive, and the ones that survived realized that if you walk the aisles at Walmart, you couldn't beat Sam Walton at the only game he cared about, which was price and having the stuff on the shelves. But what you could beat him at was helping people. 
Fishman says, take a look at a chain like True Value Hardware, which might not be able to compete on price with Walmart, but the clerks can tell you what kind of a rent you need for this project or that project. Helpful salespeople, though, haven't been enough for a lot of stores. At the end of the day, many of us just love low prices. And if that has meant abandoning Main Street for the nearby Walmart Supercenter, that's what we've done. And if that has meant a shirt is made in China instead of Ohio, we're okay with that. In the early days when Sam Walton had 12 stores, no one cared what he thought. He either bought the products people were selling or not. But once you have 1,000 stores or 2,000 stores, the power dynamic has shifted. And Sam Walton said to big players, General Mills, Kellogg's, Procter & Gamble, and little players, I want the prices of the stuff you sell us to fall about 5% a year. Whoa, 5% a year. Just out looking at the horizon, just 5% every year for as long as we can imagine? Right, right. And sometimes, whatever, in year four, sometimes that meant you doubled the size of the product and cut the price just a little bit, and so you got the efficiency that way. There's a, a legendary story. If you walk into any store in America now, deodorant is not sold in a box. It's sold in its container, plastic or, or metal or glass right, container. Right, right. When Walmart started selling deodorant, it was all in boxes. And Walmart said, get rid of the box. The deodorant's already in a container strong enough. The box costs money to make and ship. Mm-hmm. It takes up shelf space, yeah. even just a little bit of shelf space. So the, that year, you got your 5% by eliminating the box. Right, okay. And the 5%'s easy to get, right, in the first year and the second year and maybe even in the third year. But then things start to get difficult. Mm -hmm. And when they start to get difficult, you're not looking at the efficiency of your assembly lines or, you know, what kind of light bulbs you're using. You're looking at your labor costs. Mm -hmm. And that's the point at which things started to move overseas Mm -hmm. to meet the competitive demands. And Walmart had enough scale to be able to say, if you won't sell us those athletic socks, if you won't sell us those bicycles, if you won't sell us that toothpaste at the price we want, we're going to go right to your competitor Mm -hmm. and buy it from them. They will. They want Mm -hmm. our business. Mm -hmm. But that same demand eventually corrodes quality, right? There are actually products that Walmart sells, especially in the small appliance category, where there's a model number just for Walmart because the guts of the product aren't as good as the guts of a product that you would buy in an appliance store. And so if you look at the whole model number, it all looks the same except right at the end. There were holdouts, Fishman says. The folks who made snapper lawnmowers, for example, didn't want to reduce quality, and their lawnmowers weren't carried in Walmart for several years. But Walmart made suppliers an offer that was hard to refuse. People became addicted to the Walmart business. Suppliers became addicted to the Walmart business. And once you're addicted, then you either risk losing 10 or 15 or 20 percent of your business with a single decision or you knuckle under and that's how products maybe you start out making some products overseas half the products overseas the low-end products overseas and so none of this happened between 1991 and 1993 right it was a long path walmart is now the biggest company in the world 95 percent of us spent some money there in 2016 but they remember how hard it was to win the price wars. Fishman says that the year that Walmart sold a billion dollars worth of merchandise for the first time, Sears sold 30 billion. 
And they might have been able to crush Walmart if they had taken it seriously. Now, though, Walmart's worried that another company is about to be the changemaker that they once were. Walmart is five times, six times the size of Amazon. But Amazon today is the company that sets the rules of the retail landscape. And in the last three or four years, Amazon has doubled in size and Walmart has grown by 2% a year. So it's 2% on top of a really big base, but it's Amazon that is innovating and it's Amazon that people fear. And among the, the folks who fear Amazon is Walmart. According to Daryl Rigby, the retail expert at Bain & Company who we heard from earlier, they should be scared. Boy, Amazon is such a powerhouse. And I believe it's a power for good, actually. But one thing is for certain, it is kicking retail Darwinism into fast forward. <laughs> and the weak are dying faster than they were before. The strong mm. are being forced to get better faster. Mm. They've got 90 million members, 60% of U.S. households now that are prime subscribers. And prime subscribers are... Amazon's biggest promoters, they're twice as likely as regular customers to be telling their friends, you should really go on and get Amazon, get Amazon Prime. Rigby says that Amazon carries more than five times the number of items that Walmart carries and that other retailers are way, way behind. But if there's one thing that Amazon's competitors should be the most scared of, It isn't variety. It's innovation. You know, Amazon Prime was developed in about two months. Two months. Wow. Okay. And look how long it has taken competitors just to respond to that, let alone Mm. invent something like that. And the idea with Amazon Prime was that let's just create a club. We'll just have a flat fee. People pay it every year. And then they won't pay any shipping and handling after that. That's right. And it's sort of funny. A lot of people think that uh, Jeff Bezos invented Amazon Prime. He didn't. It actually Mm -hmm. came from a software engineer who put it into an employee, an electronic employee suggestion box that said, I think we could offer very fast delivery and charge for it. And I think there are a lot of customers that would love it. So November of 2004, Jeff Bezos sees this in the suggestion box and he says, I like this. Let's go out and develop it. And Hmm. so he set up a very small, about a dozen people, very small team, and said, I'd like to have this ready within two or three months. And that's what they did. They Hmm. developed Amazon Prime in about two months. Rigby points out that Amazon fails all the time, but they are relentless at trying and perfecting new ideas. Jeff Bezos likes to talk about it will be forever day one here at Amazon, because day two means stasis. It means that we start deteriorating, and I don't ever want that to happen. So he's just trying to keep the growth rate as high as he possibly can, get as much scale as he possibly can, and realizes that that scale will eventually improve their economics. Walmart is not taking this threat lying down. They do not want to be as complacent as Sears once was when Walmart was an early stage threat. They have been pouring resources into their website and customers have been flocking to it. But as the battle of the giants rages on, eager to capture all of our shopping dollars, what about the empty storefronts and the malls that close and the jobs? 
Daryl Rigby thinks that the future of socializing may be based less around browsing boutiques and more around sharing both products, like cars and music, and experiences, like bowling and cooking classes and concerts and vacations. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that what customers care about these days is the experiences. And the more they can save money from not having to purchase or own those things themselves, but have more of those experiences, the happier they are. And by the way, there's a lot of research to suggest that experiences create more happiness over the long term than ownership of items does. Because the ownership of an item just gets to be cumbersome and it breaks. But experiences, in our minds, we actually make those better over time. The vacation, even though we may have had some bad experiences on the vacation, they become fun, shared family experiences at some point in the future. And we forget the bad parts and we emphasize the good parts and that experience just gets better and better over time. It doesn't appreciate, it gets more valuable. We've got more on our website about the Walmart-Amazon battle and how it's changing our lives. Plus, recent news that the buildings that Macy's is housed in, its real estate, are now worth more than the store itself. Check it out at innovationhub.org. 